Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to 2 Samuel chapter 1. 2 Samuel chapter 1. As we continue our walk through uh, Samuel, we know this is one book, two parts. Um, so we're now in the second part, 2 Samuel chapter 1. We're going to finish out um, chapter 1, and then we're going to walk our way a little bit into chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7. 2 Samuel chapter 1. As you're finding your place in God's word, I want to welcome those who are joining us to be our live stream. We're grateful for all those that are joining us in that way. Also, Reach Church Paola, uh, Reach Church DeSoto, and the venue service right down the hall. Grateful for each and every one of you. Well, as we um, turn our attention to God's word this morning, you remember last week the Amalekite came with this message, hoping that he would receive, be received well for what he had done. Um, but he uh, is not received warmly by David. David hears the news of Saul's death and, and the part that this man had to play, or so he says he played. He has lied, he has embellished his part, his act in the midst of Saul's death to make himself look better, hoping he would receive a reward. He's not gonna get a reward from David. Uh, he will receive judgment. He will, he will die for his actions. There's an important lesson here that David is teaching the nation very, very early on and that's that uh, sin has consequences. Uh, David is going to be a king who will let it be known. If you follow God, you obey God, you're going to really like me. If you do not obey God, you do not follow God, you're not going to like me very much. And uh, David uh, doesn't know that this man has lied. But in his lie, he has said he has set his hands to the Lord's anointed. He has killed Saul. And that was forbidden. And he'll pay the consequences for his sins. A powerful picture. In fact, I think of it in so many ways, much like at the beginning of the conquest of the promised land with Joshua and the sin of Achan. You remember Achan kept back some of what was supposed to be devoted uh, to the Lord? Not supposed to take any of that. He's going to keep a little back and what will happen? He and his whole family will die. And it sounds pretty extreme, doesn't it? But, but I think there at the front end, God is sending a very clear message. You don't disobey me. They wandered in the wilderness because they had disobeyed. They had walked in sin, and as they're starting out, God wants to make clear, we're not doing that anymore. We're going to follow God. It's very similar to the, the beginning of the church, the book of Acts. You'll remember as the church is now beginning to flourish, and, and Ananias and Sapphira, you remember them? They, uh, they lied about what they gave to make themselves look better than what they really were. Does that sound like the Amalekite? They had heard about Barnabas, his giving, and he, boy, he got all kinds of accolades because he gave great things to the church. And they said, well, we're going to do that too. And it, the, the sin was not how much they gave. It was that they lied about how much they gave. And you remember, it was not a good day for Ananias and Sapphira. They're drug out of there and uh, just a bad day. They didn't have any problem with tithes and offerings the next Sunday. I'm just going to tell you, no problem next Sunday when they... <laughs> Pass the plate. But the, 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 clear, the message was clear as God, oftentimes when God is starting a new work, he sends some very stern warnings uh, that, that sin and disobedience has consequences. David has sent that message with the Amalekite very, very clearly to this nation. And you would think now the way has been cleared, he would just advance forward, uh, he would establish himself as king, but he doesn't do that. He's going to stop and he's going to pause. He's going to lead the, the nation in a time of national lament. They're going to grieve. 
And really what you see in this song, it's a national song, it's recorded in the book of Jasher. It was it's a non-canonical book that we don't have, and, but it was a book that contained a lot of national songs to remind themselves of national heroes and lessons that, that they, they needed to learn. And David records this. It's a, it's a record of his own personal grief, but it's also for national consumption to teach them some very important lessons. These are things that we need to teach our sons. They need to know the lessons of Saul and his life. It's a funeral dirge, it's a, it's a funeral message, um, and it's difficult for David because he's gonna have to honor an ungodly man. Um, that's a difficult task. He's gonna have to dodge and weave around all the sinfulness of Saul's life. He's gonna have to remember the good old days very early on, the He's going to pick out some good parts of the story and do as best he can on the nation. Why? Because David is desiring to bring reconciliation and healing to the nation. So he's going to, difficult task. I do a funeral, you know, a funeral of somebody who knows Jesus and walks with Jesus and they're faithful to the very end. I'm going to tell you, that's an easy funeral to do. Boy, an easy funeral to do. But then you got some folks and they made a confession of faith a long time ago. And then they lead a reprobate lifestyle. And you're asked to do their funeral, and you got to start making up stuff and rummaging up stories from a long time ago. That's no fun. That's not easy. That's what David, that's what David's got to do with Saul. He's going to remember the good old days. He's going to forget a lot of his life, and then he's going to remember all of Jonathan. But the point of the funeral dirge is, is very, very clear. The lesson, even though he doesn't accentuate the sinfulness of Saul, the lesson is very clear how the mighty have fallen. This guy had a great beginning. And boy, there was great promise for the nation. But now we only find ourselves in despair. Why? Because he wouldn't obey God. And again, you know what the lesson is? Sin has consequences. You may think it's small, but sin has consequences. And it didn't just affect Saul. It affected his sons, it affected his family, and it affected the nation. Sin always costs you way more than you want to pay. And so they're in loss because one man wouldn't obey God. Well, with that in mind, let's pray, and then we'll work our way through this text. Father, we thank you for your word that is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It speaks to it. It's relevant. It's practical for our lives right here today. This ancient story, Scripture says it's been recorded for us, that we might benefit from it. So, Lord, help us. Lord, help me not to muddy the water or confuse the text and the principles here, but Lord, speak plainly, make it simple and clear for us that we might apply it to our lives and conform ourselves more to the image of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, look with me at verse 17. It says, then David chanted with this lament over Saul and Jonathan, his son, and he told them to teach the sons of Judah the song of the bow. Behold, it's written in the book of Jasher. So here we're gonna record this song. It's a song of national limp. It's, only, it's also just a picture of David's um, grief. I love this, that scripture paints pictures for us of, of what it means, what it looks like to actually grieve. And we do grieve. We talked about this a little bit last week, but it's a grieving over loss. When somebody passes away, uh, we're not necessarily, especially when we think of that person knowing the Lord, we're not grieving that person because if they knew the Lord, they're in a much better place. What we're grieving over is what we have lost on this side of glory. And that's what's hard. 
That's what we grieve. It's the neverness. It's that I will never again. And that's what David is grieving, especially as he thinks of Jonathan, his best friend. I'll never again have conversation with him like I had, where we encouraged one another on the basis of God's word. That is gone. And he grieves that. Not only does he grieve that, he grieves the loss of of the the glory of God that's departed this nation. It's a song of grief. And and I want this to be taught. We're gonna record this. We're gonna write it down so that we don't repeat these these mistakes. Well, look at verse 19. This is his song. Your beauty, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. There's a lot of similarities between this song and the song of Hannah. The, the, The book of 1 Samuel begins with a birth and a song, and 2 Samuel begins with a death and a song. And the themes of these two songs are very, very similar. You remember Hannah says, uh, the, the bows of the mighty have fallen. She says, the Lord raises up and the Lord puts down. And here we see the mighty have fallen. The Lord raised up and the Lord put down. Your glory, he says, your beauty is slain on your high places. Your glory, that's a reference to Saul. You remember Saul was the king they wanted. They had rejected Samuel. They wanted a king like the Gentiles. They wanted an impressive guy who'd run out in front of them and intimidate uh, the enemy, much like uh, Goliath did with the Philistines. That's what they wanted. We want a big, strong guy. Give us a leader out front, a king, and be imposing force. And, And you remember Saul's name means what? You asked for it. Here you go. You got him. You put all your hope in a big, impressive guy. And now he is slain on the high places. It's a sad day. Verse 20, tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice. The daughters of the uncircumcised will exult. David can't bear the thought of the Philistines with their idolatries and, and all their paganness. He... he can't even bear the thought of them rejoicing in victory over God's people. And again, this is another reason why it's so important that David records this because he needs the nation to know. There's probably some folks who are thinking, you know what, you got caught up with the Philistines. Where does your allegiance lie? And David makes it known very clearly here. My allegiance lies with the Lord's people and I can't stand the thought of pagans rejoicing over the downfall of God's people. You ever watch your team play a football game or whatever, a football season started up, college football, you see your team play, and you know they're going to lose. It gets the end of the game. You know they're going to lose, especially when it's on the opposing team's home field. And, and before the game is even over, if you're like me, you turn the TV off. Why? Because you don't want to see the enemy rejoice. You don't want to see them rejoice and gloat over the destruction of your team. You just turn it off. Get that out of my sight. That's David here. I can't stand the thought of these nasty pagans with their idolatry rejoicing over the defeat of God's people. And he grieves the state of the nation. Is, is this applicable to us in the nation that we live in today? A nation that had some good old days, but because of our disobedience and getting away from God, we know despair, and we know death, and we know defeat, and a pagan world rejoices. David can't stand it. He grieves over it. Tell it not in in Ashkelon. Proclaim it not in the streets. 
Let not these people rejoice over these things. Then in verse 21, O mountains of Gilboa, let not do a rain beyond you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. So he curses the mountains. He starts cursing inanimate objects. He's mad. To some extent, I love, if you read the Psalms, you just get the heart of David. David just puts it out there. He's mad at the mountains. This is where our king died. I'm frustrated. If you can't bring forth good things, I wish you didn't even exist. Uh, There are some parallels, though, here to Jesus. You remember when he's in the last week of his life and he enters into Jerusalem. I believe it's on Tuesday morning. He enters into Jerusalem and he curses the fig tree. You got no fruit? Cursed be this. And it's symbolic of the nation of Israel that's not bringing fruit of faithfulness to God. And he curses that fig tree. Here, David curses the mountains in not bringing forth glory to God in the destruction of this king. It says his shield is defiled. It's not anointed with oil. The, the, probably the shield of Saul was one of Uh, The depictions, the symbols of his glory and his greatness. He probably had an incredible shield and they would oil up those shields. They would make them so oily that that the enemy couldn't grab hold of them or try to pull them out of your hands. It also made them better uh, able to deflect arrows. But here his his shield is unanointed. The picture there is it's, it's lying in the dust. It's dried up. And unanointed is probably a picture of the fact that 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 Saul was the Lord's anointed. And now he lies in the dust and he's, he's been rejected. It's a sad day. Verse 22, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Verse 23, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life and in their death, they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Here is David he has to go back to the good old days. He has to revert back to the, 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 the former things because we know that, that, that Saul has just known defeat. But in the early days, as they were walking in faithfulness, both Saul and Jonathan knew great victory. And, and really, you look at Jonathan, man, this was a guy who was faithful and loyal at the very end. He never turned back. And if you go back to 1 Samuel 13 and 14, you remember it's, it's Jonathan that goes against the garrison of the, the Philistines and he kills 20 men by himself with nothing more than a little armor bearer. This was a man of great courage and, and faithful to the Lord, didn't back down. And with Saul, he remembers those days of early victory. In verse 23, he remembers their pleasant life. And the fact of the matter is, in latter years, it was Saul who threw a spear at Jonathan because he thought that Jonathan wasn't faithful to him. But again, it's a sad deal when you can't, you can't really think of recent events. You, you gotta look, look back to way back in the past when they were walking in faithfulness. Verse 24, O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. He remembers back as as. Saul would win some early victories when he was walking in faithfulness. Those early victories brought prosperity and blessing to the nation. So David says, go look in your closets and remember that this guy blessed your life. When he was walking in faithfulness, when he was obedient and he knew victory, prosperity came to the nation. And then he goes on in verse 25 and he's going to focus in specifically on Jonathan, how of the how the, have the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan is slain on your high places. I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You've been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. 
And he looks and he thinks specifically of Jonathan, this man that he had a covenantal relationship with. And, and obviously there's some contemporary liberal scholars who will read this and read into this some kind of sinful or homosexual relationship between Jonathan and David. As I like to say, there's a Greek word for it. It's called baloney. It's junk. It's ludicrous. Listen to me. This is, this is absurd. The fact of the matter is, on a couple of different levels, you think of this just very, on a, very practically, David loved women. Loved women. In fact, got him into a lot of trouble. Loved women probably too much. And not only that, but later on, the sin of his uh, adultery with Bathsheba is just on the horizon. And in the Old Testament, adultery was condemned as a sin. And David engages in sinful activity as the Lord's anointed. And he's called out for it, isn't he? He's disciplined by God in a very harsh way because he committed a sin of adultery. In the Old Testament, homosexuality is condemned as a sin. Very clearly condemned as a sin in the book of Leviticus. So wouldn't we think if God is going to condemn him and judge him and discipline in a sin of adultery, then God would also condemn him and judge him and discipline if he was engaged in a sin of homosexuality. But we see no indication of that here. Please understand, there was a, there was a covenantal relationship between David and Jonathan. You remember, it was Jonathan who took off his armor and laid it at David's feet and in a symbolic way said, I am willing to die so that you can be king. I'm laying down my right to the throne. I'm laying down my right to be king so that you can do what God called you to do. And I'm here to tell you, I will support you to the very end, to the point of death. I'll be at your right hand. I'll be the first one to step up and say, you're king and I'll serve you. And David says, I found a friendship and a faithfulness in my relationship to Jonathan that I knew in no other relationship in my life. A man who was willing to lay down his life in his faithfulness to the calling that God had placed on my life. You know, as I thought about this, if you've ever talked to, um, if you ever had a chance, really, because there's so few of them remaining, but you ever had a chance to talk to men in World War II that served in the trenches, and you hear their stories of serving together with men being willing to lay down their lives in service to one another, and they will tell you they have a bond with those men and a friendship and a commitment with those brothers in arms that they knew in no other relationship in their life. And, and even beyond that, I think in so many ways, just as it is in, in a lot of these stories, we're being pointed forward to Jesus. Jonathan will lay down his life for the Lord's anointed lay down everything, and in that, David will find a fellowship that supersedes all the other relationships of his life, and you and I, as we give our allegiance to Jesus Christ, who laid his life down for us, and we give our life to him, and we commit ourselves to him, we find in Jesus a friend and an intimate relationship that supersedes all the other relationships of our life, that one of the great securities in your marriage relationship is knowing that your spouse loves Jesus more than they love you. Because that relationship supersedes all others. And I think uh, in so many ways, David and Jonathan are depicting that in front of us in that covenantal relationship. And here is David just as a man saying, I am grieving 
because I'll no longer have encouraging, God-glorifying conversations with a guy who was my friend. I've lost in this is what David's saying. And then you see that very last verse of the psalm, how have the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? The lesson, the, the principle of the song that David wanted taught to the nation is very, very clear. The lesson is this. Sin, sin has consequences. Sin costs us. Then David said, sin cost me, sin cost our nation. So you got this man, Saul, that you guys loved. He was your glory. You wanted him because he was big and impressive. But because he wouldn't obey God, because of this man's sin, sin was like a cancer in his life. And it just began to eat up every other area of his life. And it began to spill over into all the other relationships. So this man sinned, and then his sin caused loss. It cost him his relationship with his son. It would cost him his son's life. It would cost the the army a loss in battle. It would cost the loss of a lot of men. It would cost the, the glory of God to depart from this nation because one man wouldn't obey God. Do we ever see that in the situations of our life? We often think that we'll sin and it'll just affect us. Listen, you don't live unto yourself and your sin always has consequences. It will always cost you more than you want to pay and it will always affect more people than just you. And here is Saul, the nation's anointed, their their king, he has sinned and it has left, left this nation in a bad spot. David is saying, sin has cost us. There's loss, loss. Loss. And David is grieving. But then there's hope. Then there's hope. In so many ways, as I saw this as a funeral service, it is the picture of a really good funeral service because at a funeral service, you want to do a few things. You want to honor that individual as best you can. You want to seek to honor them. You want to honor their life. You want to recognize what's been lost. That's what we do at a funeral. We grieve. The wages of sin is death. Whenever we come to a funeral, it is a stark reminder of what sin has cost us. But then finally, we want to look to the hope of Jesus Christ. And so that is what David does in this funeral service. Well, look on in chapter 2. Says in verse one of chapter two, then it came about afterwards that David inquired of the Lord saying, shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. And David said, where shall I go up? And he said to, uh, said to Hebron. So David is the beginning, he's, he's grieved, he's, he's led the nation in lament and grieving over the loss of Saul to teach them a lesson to bring reconciliation. And now as he officially begins his ascent, and that is, that's what this is, it's his, his ascension to the throne. We're gonna even see that word go up. It means to ascend. We're seeing David's ascent to the throne, to his reign. And as he begins that ascent, what will mark his life? What is the first thing he does? He inquires of the Lord. 
The first thing that will mark his life is that I am going to be a man who seeks the will and word of God. That God is going to establish this kingdom on the basis of his word. I'm going to ask of the Lord. The reason that Saul is not king, if you want to go look over in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, it will tell you the reason that Saul did not reign and why he didn't continue is because he wouldn't obey the word of God. He breached faith with God, meaning he wouldn't obey. He wouldn't seek God, and when he did seek God, he wouldn't listen to God and he wouldn't obey. And David says, I'm going to tell you what's going to mark my kingdom. We're going to be a people who don't take one step unless God directs it. And so we're going to pray. What do we do next, boys? Boys, let's hit a knee. Get old Abiathar over here. We're going to seek the word of God. We're going to pray. You know, you're going to see a revival begin in the nation of Israel. Get to chapter 10. It's like Camelot in Israel. It's revival. How does it begin? Prayer. You study every great revival of human history. It always began with the people of God humbling themselves and seeking the word of God. David says, we're going to pray. He asks of the Lord. He inquires of the Lord, where do you want me to go? Where do you want me to go? Should I go up? Lord says, go up. Is that enough though? No, no. Should I go up to Judah? I love this about David. He's not presumptuous on the Lord. Very humble guy. In other words, if, um, if you knew uh, that you were going to become president of the United States and uh, you knew it's gonna happen, the Lord's promised it to you and uh, you're saying, Lord, wh- where should I go first? You want me to just go Um, you want me to just go to my hometown? That's what he's asking. Judah's his hometown. You want to go back to just my folks? David is saying, I'll just go to my people. They like me there. I'm I'm, I'm family there. They'll they'll, they'll welcome me there. David doesn't say, you want me to go to Washington, D.C.? I'll just take over the capital if you want me to. I'll just go, I'll just conquer it all. No, David's not presumptuous. In his humility, he says, God, I'll just, I'll just go home. I'll just go back to my people. We'll just start off small, we'll, small beginnings, and we'll just work in humility and try to be faithful. And God says, no, I want you to go to Hebron. Why Hebron? Why, this is so critical. Why Hebron? There, there's a message that God is sending here by telling him to go back to Hebron. You remember Hebron is the place that God brings Abraham to when he sees the promised land? And he looks out and says, all this will be yours. He takes him to Hebrew. That, this is going to be your land. That is the promised land that God is going to give to the nation of Israel. And you'll fact, it's Hebron uh, that is also a place that uh, Abram will call Machpelah. Machpelah, that is where Sarah will be buried. That's where Moses will be, or Abraham will be buried. That's where Jacob, uh, or Isaac and Rebekah will be buried. That's where Jacob will be buried. It's the only part of the promised land that Abraham actually owned and possessed before he died. And do you see what God is doing here? He's taking David and he's connecting him to Abraham. He's connecting him to the patriarchs. He's connecting him, more importantly, to the promise of God when God said to Abraham, Abraham, in your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And what is the the actual promise there? That I'm sending somebody, all the way back from Genesis 3.15, I'm gonna send somebody, the Messiah, who will defeat sin, Satan, and death. He'll be the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he'll usher into my kingdom here on earth and bring salvation to the people. That was the promise, and now we're seeing David is connected to that promise. 
that David is going to play a significant role in the preparation and the forerunner for the eventual Messiah, King Jesus. Don't you love the word of God and how it strands all this together? And so you go back to Hebrew. Hebron was also a Levitical city. You know, the Levites didn't have their own towns. They didn't have their own land. They had these cities. He said, I want you to go back to the biblical scholars. I want you to be around those folks. Um, and, and also, it was a city of refuge. When you got in trouble, there was these cities of refuge, and, and you, you committed a crime. You're fearful that everybody's just going to kill you, chase after you. You go to a city of refuge so that justice could be done and mercy could be extended. Do you see where God is sending David, let's go back to the, let's go to Jamestown. Let's go to Philadelphia. We're gonna go to Boston. We're gonna go back where this started. We're gonna go back to the patriarchs. We're gonna go back to a place of truth. We're gonna go back to a place of righteousness. We're gonna go back to a place of mercy. And we're gonna connect you with that promise that I made to Abraham that I'm gonna send somebody. David's playing a significant role. In fact, I don't know about you, but as I read these things, it's often tempting to me to say, Lord, what did, I, wouldn't it be nice if God would give us specific directions like he did David here? You know, you go to God. Yeah, go down to this street and take a left. I want you to go to that city and that place. And, but you know, as I thought about this, it's important for us to remember, we're not David. Um, David is, is a forerunner to Messiah. He plays a, a critical role in God bringing about his salvation purposes. And so David, in so many ways, needed specific direction from the Lord in ways that you and I don't, don't need specific direction from the Lord. I mean, if, if there's a lesson that we want to, to learn from David, it's that the Lord, just as the Lord had a plan for David's life, the Lord has a plan for your life, has a plan for my life. And David, as he's following God, and there's all these twists and these turns, and there's moments where he's not hearing from God, and he's wondering if God is going to bring about his perfect purposes. The message to David is, I have a plan for your life, and I will bring it to fulfillment, and that's the encouragement to us. I do have a plan for your life. I will bring it to fulfillment. And in a more general sense, the lesson for us is that even though God may not speak to us and give us specific direction in this way, he has given us his revealed word in the scripture and we're to be a people whose lives are marked by seeking the Lord in prayer and in the study of his word. Meaning as we walk this life and as we make decisions, we don't need to be a people who just operate willy-nilly and make decisions based on whatever way our hearts lead us in that day. It's that we're to be a people who in the everyday decisions of our lives are constantly hitting our knees and saying, God, please guide me. I may not hear a specific word like David did, but I believe you speak through your word. I believe you'll guide me and I'm gonna be in your word and I'm gonna learn principles and I want you to guide me because I wanna be in the center of your will. And more practically for us, if you look at the very next verse, in verse two, so David went up there. Guess what David did? He heard God's word. This is a critical piece. It's one thing to hear God's word. It's another thing to do what? Obey it. I don't know about you, but it's not the parts of God's word that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand and I don't obey. Those are the ones that get me caught up. The key to knowing the blessing of God, the key to David's reign, the key to his success, the key to his greatness will be very simply that he obeyed. And when he didn't, it went poorly. I say it every week, you'll never regret obeying Jesus. The only regrets I ever have in my life are those times in which I did not obey Jesus. I didn't obey his word. 
David obeyed. He went up there and he, his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. And David brought up with him his men who were with him, each with his household, and they lived in the cities of Hebron. That's beautiful. These are the guys who signed up when there wasn't a lot of perks. They signed up when David was in refuge. They signed up when David was the anointed king, but he hadn't established his kingdom, and he was on the run. He was a king who had been rejected. He was a king who didn't look like a king, but they signed up trusting in the promise of God that he would be king. Does that sound like us? That we have bent the knee and are following a savior, King Jesus, who was rejected by the world, who, who died on a cross, was placed in a tomb, rose from the tomb, has ascended to the Father. He sits at the, the right hand of the Father. In fact, he sits on the throne of David. But we, we trust him today even though he hasn't physically established his reign and his rule on earth. And sometimes we face persecution and difficulty and suffering and trials. But we hang in there because we know what? There's a day coming. And for these guys, the day came. And now they're called up with David to Hebron. Verse four, then the men of Judah came and there anointed David king over the house of Judah. I love this. He goes, and these men from Judah come out and they immediately anoint him. They're just willing. They're, God just opens their eyes. They realize what's happening. It's just, a, I just picture this as a small group of elders from the city of Judah. It's like a little mustard seed. The kingdom is beginning to grow and sprout up. It's gonna become this huge tree, but right here is at its initial beginnings. And one of the things that you see here is that, that those who follow this king, they will come willingly, they will come voluntarily. David will not force himself over people. That's what most kings do. Most kings say, I'm king, you're not. You either follow me or worship me or you die. David will be worshiped and followed voluntarily. Does that remind you of another king who it says of him in Revelation, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He doesn't barge his way into your life. He doesn't force himself on anybody. He extends an invitation. He knocks at the door David is a polite king, and those who worship him will do so voluntarily. Then you look on, it says in David, they told David, the second part, portion of verse four, and they told David, saying, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. And David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, may you be blessed of the Lord because you have shown this kindness to Saul, your Lord, and have buried him. Now may the Lord show loving kindness and truth to you, and I also will show this goodness to you because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant. For Saul, your Lord, is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. So David's guys, they let him know here, the men of Jabesh-Gilead, they, they buried Saul, meaning there's these guys over here in Jabesh-Gilead, and they are really loyal to Saul. In fact, they are so loyal that they were willing to risk their lives to make sure that he had an appropriate burial. Now, in those days, if you're a new king and you hear there's a group of people who are fiercely loyal to the other guy, what do you typically do to them? Oh, you kill them because we don't need opposition. I only want people who are on my team. So you just eliminate them. So there's probably some level of fear and concern in the men of Jabesh Gilead. There's a new king coming up and, uh, and we've, we've pronounced loyalty to King Saul. So we are in so many ways, we're enemies of the king. And he might want to do us harm. 
And yet David will not respond that way. David sends word, he sends message to the men of Jabesh Gilead, and he says, way to go, and may the Lord extend loving kindness. It's, it's covenantal relationship. It's, it's language that, that marks a covenantal relationship. And so he's saying, may God bless you. May you be blessed. And, and, and he goes further than that. Not just God will bless you, but you know what he says? I'm going to bless you. Why is David going to bless you? Because they were obedient to do what the Lord told them to do. And again, we're going to see with David's reign, you obey God even when it's not personally advantageous to my life. But if you obey God, you're going to really like me. I'll be your friend. But if you do not obey God, you're not going to like me very much. And David says to these guys, listen, you did the right thing. You honored the Lord's anointed. And I'm praying God's going to bless you. And you need to know I'm going to bless you. I'm going to take care of you guys. I'm going to be good to you. But you, you notice, too, at the very end there, what does he make clear? The very last verse, verse 7, it says, For Saul, your Lord, is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Most of the commentators agree that David, in this moment, he's extending an invitation to the men of Jabesh Gilead. He's saying to them, you did the right thing. And I'm praying the Lord will honor you and I'll honor you. But, but you, he's saying to him as well, you need to know something. Saul's dead and I'm king. And David in so many ways is politely extending an invitation to these guys who would be viewed as his enemies. He's saying to them, would, would, would you transfer allegiance to me? I know you love Saul, but he's dead. And, and, and the men of Judah have anointed me. God's anointed me. I'm the new king. I'm asking you, just as you were loyal to Saul, will you, will you in the loving kindness, in, in, the, in, the, in the blessing that I'm extending to you would, you, would you transfer that allegiance to me? The transfer of their allegiance was not automatic. It wasn't assumed. David extends this invitation saying, you've had this king, you were loyal to him. Would, would you transfer that allegiance to me? And what he's also saying in, in the words that he writes to them is I'm a really good king. You know what he's saying to them? It's almost as if he's saying, men of Jabesh Gilead, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. You worn out? You tired, you've tried to do the right thing, the nation lies in distress, you're on the east side of Jordan, you're worn out with the Ammonites who almost killed you, you're worn out with the consequences of sin. It's a new day, how about, how about coming and being, being loyal to me? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know what he's saying to them? It's a new day dawning. There's a new king sitting on the throne and the kingdom will be established on righteousness and peace and mercy and there's blessing to those who will extend loyalty and allegiance to me. And I believe in so many ways this is pointing us forward to Jesus. See, the fact of the matter is everybody in this room, <laughs> you're serving someone. 
You've given your allegiance to someone or something. And I'm here to tell you, if you've given your allegiance to anything other than Jesus, you have devoted yourself to following a master who will lead you to despair and death and regret. Because the fact of the matter is, there's only two real masters. You're either serving Jesus or Satan. And Satan is a hard master. He promises good things, but he comes to still kill and destroy, and he will drive you hard. And Jesus says, because see, here's the misnomer. Everybody thinks, well, if I give my life to Jesus, oh, that's going to be a boring life. I'm going to have all these burdens of commands to fulfill and speak this high language and have to live in the clouds all the time. Listen to me this morning. If that's the depiction of Christianity that you have in your mind, it is completely false. You want to know real joy in this world? You want to know real fulfillment? Jesus says, come to me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. You'll never find fulfillment like you'll find in Jesus Christ. You'll never find forgiveness like you'll find in Jesus. You'll never find peace like you can know in Jesus. You can never have hope like you know in Jesus Christ. I have an illustration with this. Um, trains, um, trains operate best when they're on what? When they're on tracks. A train knows all the fullness of trainness when it's on the tracks. But what if that train has grand illusions? That train sees some folks hiking in the mountains and says, boy, that looks like fun. That train sees some folks going fishing and says, I'd really like to try that. Train sees some folks running in a field and says, boy, I'd really like to try that. But if that train gets off the tracks, listen, a train without tracks is a mess. It's destruction, it's chaos. Listen to me this morning. You were made for God. You were made for God. You were made by God, you were made for God. And your life will always work best when you're living on the tracks of obedience to his word. But here's our problem. In our sinful flesh and in the deceitfulness of Satan, we get grand illusions that life will be better off if I jump the tracks. And we start doing whatever we want to do and we make ourselves out to be God. It's called idolatry. And you know what you end up with? You end up with the world as we know it today. Chaos, destruction, and despair. And if that's where you find yourself today, just like King David to these men who were perceived as his enemies, Jesus says to you today in your sinfulness, you might be an enemy, 
But I'm asking you today, in the faithfulness that I have demonstrated on the cross, in the love that I've demonstrated on the cross for your sin and for your salvation, he extends the invitation. Are you weary? Are you worn out with sin today? Are you tired of the regrets of sin? Are you tired of the depression of sin? Are you tired and worn out by the promises that sin has made to you and never once came through and only leaves you and more brokenness and more despair and you're running from God and you're worn out and you're thinking about throwing in the towel today and Jesus says to you, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Father, we thank you for uh, your word that always points us to Jesus. Lord, I, I just, uh, I pray for those of us that do know you. I, I pray there's a clear lesson here with Saul. He had such a good start and lots of potential but his life was eaten up by sin. It crept its way into his life in little places and little ways, but it destroyed everything he held dear. It not only cost him, it cost everybody around him. I think there's probably some folks in here this morning, they know they've compromised in certain areas of their life. They're living in sin. And maybe they think it'll only affect me. Maybe they think that God will wink at my sin. Maybe I'll get a pass. I pray that they would know the timeless truth of your word is that sin always has consequences. I pray today that they would turn in repentance and faith and know that you are a God who is gracious and kind and merciful. And even though there might be consequences, you will walk through us even through those consequences. And you'll give us hope. And you have ways of redeeming the time. I pray that those folks would turn to you. They'd know your grace and your forgiveness. And and Lord, if there's anybody here watching online, they don't know you. They're worn out with sin. I pray today they would bend the knee to King Jesus. They'd submit to you. Maybe they're fearful. I don't know what they think. But I pray today they'd take a step of faith and just lay down their life. And say, I'm tired of going my own way. I'm worn out with sin. It's left me with nothing but depression and hopelessness and despair. I want a new master. I want to follow a king who promises life and forgiveness and grace and hope. I pray that they would turn to you and know your forgiveness and your salvation today. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.